Singapore is a relentlessly G-rated experience, micromanaged by a state that has the look and feel of a large corporation. If IBM had ever bothered to actually possess a physical country, that country might have had a lot in common with Singapore. There's a certain white-shirted constraint, an absolute humorlessness in the way Singapore Limited operates. Conformity here is the prime directive, and the fuzzier brands of creativity are in extremely short supply. There's no slack in Singapore. Imagine an Asian version of Zurich operating as an offshore capsule at the foot of Malaysia. An affluent microcosm whose citizens inhabit something that feels like, well, Disneyland. Disneyland with a death penalty. These are the words of William Gibson, author of the seminal essay titled Disneyland with the Death Penalty. The story goes that the Wired magazine, which published his essay in 1993, was banned in Singapore for Gibson's scathing critique of the country. I call the work seminal because the phrase Disneyland with the death penalty has become a persistent and enduring label to, to describe Singapore, even to this day, 26 years since. I'm sure you've heard of the phrase before. It pops up time and again in conversations about Singapore, both online and offline. So what is it about Disneyland with the death penalty? Is William Gibson's essay an accurate portrayal of Singapore? Was there something so relevant in his words that it keeps being quoted even three decades later? This episode... We're going to revisit the essay and the circumstances that allowed it to dominate any discussion about Singapore and the man behind it all. My name is Rindo and you're listening to Living It Up in Lion City. In the very first episode of this podcast, I allude to William Gibson and his work Disneyland with the Death Penalty. In fact, they were part of the reason why this podcast was created. Back then, in April 2018, I called William Gibson a journalist. It's a very Eurocentric narrative, if I may say so. Why would it be Eurocentric? Well, like, it, I, I need to like take a step back and go back to like certain things that defined why people, why, you know, Singapore is like a stuck-up nation in popular culture, right? So there's a perception that was defined by someone called William Gibson in the 1990s. So he was a journalist for The Wired magazine. He came into Singapore, and he was the one who coined the term uh, Disneyland of the death penalty. But it was only much, much later that I found out that he wasn't a journalist at all. He's a writer. Uh, a writer in science fiction, in fact. Dystopian science fiction. Now, you're probably thinking, why is that important? So what if he's a novelist who writes science fiction? Well, let's talk about that. The thing that interests me most about the urban landscape is its 
its unknowability. There's a sort of mystery there. It's there's too much. There's too much to comprehend. And in a way, the the sprawl for me is wishful thinking. Born in 1948, William Gibson grew up with a love for science fiction and a predilection towards anti-establishment ideals. His teen and early adult years saw him immersing himself in the countercultures of the 1960s, a crazy time of civil rights movements, alternative lifestyles, anti-war protests, sexual liberation, and a celebration of recreational drug use. It was a transformative phase for him and for America at large. You're probably thinking, again, why is this important, Rindo? Well, I'm getting there. It's important to establish that William Gibson was very driven by the anti-establishment and countercultural narratives of his time. And it shows in his literature. Gibson's literary career began in the 1970s. In his short stories and later on his novels, he explored the, the darker side of science fiction, set in worlds of dystopian, dysfunctional, urban sprawl. His works navigate themes of technological dependence, malicious corporatization, and social decay with a gritty and darkly comic flair. Decidedly staying away from the more utopian flavor of earlier science fiction. He's the one who coined the word cyberspace. And he's also, more importantly, credited as the father of the cyberpunk genre. His first novel, Neuromancer, in 1984, became one of the most influential works in science fiction history. In fact, it served a significant inspiration to the film The Matrix. By the early 1990s, he was an established science fiction icon. On top of the numerous critically acclaimed novels under his belt, he started writing non-fiction pieces for newspapers and journals. In the year 1993, he was invited to write a piece about a distant foreign country by a newly started magazine that went by the name Wired. Before we continue, let's talk about Wired. Actually, let's talk about the era that Wired was born in. It spans the globe like a superhighway. It is called Internet. The net to long-time users. Internet is a whole group of networks. The net is made up of some 12,000 individual computer networks. It was the year 1993. Bill Clinton had just become the president of the United States. The Bombay riots rocked India at the time. The European Union had just been created. Jurassic Park released that year and captured the imagination of kids and adults the world over. Amidst all this, the internet was still in its infancy mostly limited to military, scientific, and university circles, but gaining increasing visibility in the world at large. People were just starting to understand the possibilities 
of a worldwide network of computers. In January of 1993, The Wire magazine came to be. It was geared to everything future-oriented and aimed to be the Rolling Stones of technology. At the same time, it was the brainchild of entrepreneurs who were part of the Silicon Valley counterculture, and it showed. In January of 1993, The Wired magazine came to be. It was geared to everything future-oriented and aimed to be the rolling stones of technology. At the same time, it was the brainchild of entrepreneurs who were part of the Silicon Valley counterculture, and it showed. The magazine was firmly anti-establishment, and to them, the enemy was big business, big media, and big government. To that end, it invited the voices of thought leaders to pitch in. Thought leaders who existed in the intersection of counterculture and futurism. And that's where William Gibson came in. He was invited by Wired to write something, and so he flew to Singapore. It's like an entire country run by Jeffrey Katzenberg, the producer had said, under the motto, be happy or I'll kill you. Now that I'm actually here, the Disneyland metaphor is proving impossible to shake. From the get-go, you can tell that Gibson went in with a preconceived notion of what Singapore was going to be like. His producer had already planted that seed, and that seed was Katzenberg. For context, Jeffrey Katzenberg was the chairman of Walt Disney at the time, and the allusion by William Gibson's producer emphasized the notion that Singapore was a squeaky clean utopia, but with something darker underneath the surface. Was it Laurie Anderson who said that VR would never look real until they learned how to put some dirt in it? Singapore's airport, the Changi Airtropolis, seemed to possess no more resolution than some early VPL world. There was no dirt whatsoever, no muss, no furred fractal edge to things. Outside the organic, florid as ever in the tropics, had been gardened into brilliant green and all too perfect examples of its health. Only the clouds were feathered with chaos, weird columnar structures towering above the Strait of China. And there it is. Gibson's distrust of an all too perfect sense of order is apparent here. There is surprise and, uh, and wariness in his voice, as though this level of shininess in the Changi airport is unexpected and unnatural. The cab driver warned me about littering. He asked where I was from. He asked if it was clean there. Singapore very clean city. There seem to be golf courses on either side of the freeway. You come for golf? No. Business? Pleasure. He sucked his teeth. He had his doubts about that one. And so it goes on. Listeners, if you got the time, do read the article for yourself. It makes for interesting reading.
What strikes me the most about the tone throughout his essay is that he's going in with a presupposition that Singapore is stuck up and that there's something surreal about its orderliness. It also smacks of Eurocentrism. One part is a sense of wonder that an Asian country can rise up to the likes of Western civilization, and the other part is disdain that Singapore is somehow getting the Western metropolis build plan wrong because the environment, the government, and the culture is too strange to truly embrace Western ways and be part of the rest of the civilized world. I took several solitary jet lag walks at dawn when the city's ghosts tend to be most visible, but there was very little to be seen of previous realities. Josh sticks smoldering in an old brass holder on the white painted column of a shop house. A mirror positioned above the door of a supplier of electrical goods, set to snare and deflect the evil that travels in a straight line. A rusty Trishaw chained to a freshly painted iron railing. The physical past here has almost entirely vanished. I understand what he's trying to say. A lot of us feel that a place has soul and culture when there's something old, something that shows wear and tear and implies that there's a story behind it. But in this case, I feel like Gibson is needlessly fetishizing the old, um, looking for markers to old things beyond the facade of the skyline. Um, and what's a little annoying is that he's clearly just looking at the business district, the one place which changes the most in most cities. There's less in the way of alternative, let alone dissident style in Singapore than in any city I've ever visited. I did once see two young Malay men clad in basic global heavy metal black jeans and a t-shirt and waist length hair. One's t-shirt was embroidered with the Rastafarian colors, causing me to think its owner must have balls the size of durian fruit or else be flat out suicidal, or possibly both. But they were it, really. For over boho style, I didn't see a single bad girl in Singapore, and I missed her. I haven't lived in Singapore in the 1990s, but I'm struggling to understand what he means by a lack of dissident style. I feel like his judgment is based on superficial indicators of what he thinks is nonconformist. It just comes across as edgy. A thorough scan of available tapes and CDs confirmed a pop diet of such profound middle-of-the-road blandness that one could easily imagine the stock had been vetted by Mormon missionaries. You wouldn't have any shonen knife, would you? Sir, this is a music shop. More edginess again. He's being facetious, sure, but come on, dude. You just described literally every other popular music store in the 1990s. That said, any foreign book, music, or film in the 1990s was indeed checked and vetted, lest, air quote, undesirable material snuck through. Gibson talks of the undesirable propagation unit that policed media in Singapore, which I couldn't seem to get any information on, outside of his essay, of course, but there did exist 
a law called the Undesirable Publications Act, which disallowed anything considered harmful to the social order. This included pornography, explicit lyrics, and anything offensive to religion, race, or if it was dissident to the state. The local papers, including one curiously denatured tabloid, New Paper, are essentially organs of the state, instruments of only the most desirable propagation. This ceaseless boosterism in the service of order, health, prosperity, and the Singaporean way quickly induces a species of low-key Orwellian dread. Gibson is not far off the mark on this one. Singapore in the 1990s was a very different time. The book Reluctant Editor, released in 2019 by P.N. Balaji, uh, the former editor of the new paper, uh, talks about life as a newsperson back in the day, and it makes for fascinating reading. That said, Gibson is very keen to play up the sinister aspect of it all. Ordinarily, confronted with a strange city, I'm inclined to look for parts that have broken down and fallen apart, revealing the underlying social mechanisms, how the place is really wired beneath the lay of the land, as presented by the Chamber of Commerce. This won't do in Singapore, because nothing is falling apart. Everything that's fallen apart has already been replaced with something new. The word infrastructure takes on a new and claustrophobic resonance here. Somehow it's all infrastructure. Gibson is Indiana jonesing it again, looking for chinks in the armor. His disappointment in not finding any is interpreted as a fault of the country rather than his surface-level assumptions of this unnatural Asian city. It's boring here. And somehow it's the same ennui that lies in wait in any theme park. Put particularly in those that are somehow in too aggressively spiffy of a state of repair. Everything painted so recently that it positively creaks with niceness. And even the odd rare police car sliding past starts to look like something out of a Chuck E. Cheese franchise. And the boring clause makes its entry. The cleanliness and the sterility bothers him. Perhaps Singapore's destiny will be to become nothing more than a smug, neo-Swiss enclave of order and prosperity, amid a sea of unthinkable weirdness. Dear God, what a fate. Gibson throws shade at Switzerland again. Now, is there some connection between boringness and banks? I feel like there's a larger conversation around how financial hubs are overwhelmingly associated with unflattering adjectives like uninspiring, boring, and soulless. A conversation for another time, for sure. Now, for Gibson, the biggest issues he took with his limited jaunt of a few days in Singapore wasn't that it was boring or soulless, even though, that he, even though he said it was both of those things. According to him, 
there were three red flags. One, a state-dominated media with paternal and busybody attitudes towards its citizens. The real estate in newspapers and the bandwidth on television was overwhelmingly crammed with what he calls boosterist propaganda. Two, Singapore at the time was embarking on an ambitious plan to digitize the nation and connect arterial computer systems into a coherent whole. Back then, it was called IT2000. Interestingly, William Gibson harbors a vague distrust of hyperconnectivity, no doubt channeling his cyberpunk fiction sensibilities. Remember, folks, this was in the early 90s. The internet was still new, and a lot of the cyberpunk themes, Gibson's works included, were about doomsday scenarios of hyperconnectivity in neo-fascist systems. In the eyes of Gibson, that's what Singapore felt like. A well-oiled machine that ran with preternatural efficiency, bolstered by an establishment that leaned ever so slightly into fascism. To him, Singapore was the matrix. This is reflected in another article about Singapore in the same issue of The Wired magazine, titled Intelligent Island by Sandy Sandfort. This article goes into more detail about the IT2000 plan, interviewing the chief architects too. Even as the strategy of interlinking networks island-wide was being explained, the author had very pointed apprehensions about an already overbearing government taking overarching control of the internet. The third red flag is the reason why the article is called Disneyland with the death penalty. At the time of his visit, a drug mule from Malaysia and another from the Netherlands were just being sentenced to death, which is the punishment in Singapore for peddling narcotics. Gibson, having lived through the countercultures of the 1960s and 70s, understandably has strong feelings about it. Not about the death penalty as such, but the death penalty for a drug-related offense. But, as with everything in life, context is key. At least 32 countries had capital punishment for drug trafficking at the time, including the United States of America. So, it's weird that he focuses on Singapore being somehow the only country that you know, deals the death penalty for drug trafficking. And I must have been starting to lose it because I saw a crumpled piece of paper on the spotless floor and started snapping pictures of it. They gave me a stern look when they came over to pick it up and carry it away. So I avoided eye contact, straightened my tie, and assumed the position that would eventually get me on the Cathay Pacific's flight to Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, I'd seen huge matte black butterflies flapping around the customs hall, nobody paying them the least attention. I caught a glimpse of the walled city of Kowloon too. Maybe I could catch another before the future comes to tear it down. Traditionally the home of pork butchers, unlicensed denturists, and dealers in heroin, the walled city still stands at the foot of a runway, awaiting demolition. Some kind of profound embarrassment to modern China. Its clearance has long been made a condition of the looming change of hands. 
hive of dream, those mismatched, uncalculated windows, how they seemed to absorb all the frantic activity of KTAC airport, sucking in energy like a black hole. I was ready for something like that. I loosened my tie, clearing Singapore airspace. Thus he ends his musings. What do I think of it? Well, I find his anecdotes and opinions quite pedestrian. It was very likely acclaimed commentary lauded by critics in 1993, but looking through the lens of someone living in 2019, his observations are very simplistic. Too clean. Too orderly. Too boring. Too many malls. Too shiny and new. Too fascist. In a lot of ways, it channels the sentiment from an earlier short story of his called The Gurns Back Continuum, where a traveling photographer is bemused and unnerved by the manufactured aesthetic of a futuristic city. There are some very interesting parallels, and it kind of validates my suspicions of Gibson's perceptions of Singapore being set in stone before he even got here. Perhaps I'm being too unkind to William Gibson. He is entitled to his opinion and there is nothing wrong with it. Sure, he rejects the orderliness of Singapore and he prefers the exoticism of Hong Kong's chaos, which is more aligned with his general perception of Asia. But hey, he's a fiction writer with a certain outlook on culture and I can totally see why Singapore unnerved him. Let's set aside criticism of his words being blinkered and colored with neo-colonialist condescension. He was clearly writing for Wired, writing for an audience far removed from Asia and Asian culture. He was writing a travelogue of sorts, and he was catering to a certain demographic, and that's okay. He's not a journalist, and so his words shouldn't be held to the same standards of objective journalism. The essay, Disneyland with the Death Penalty, was subsequently published in the September 1993 issue of The Wired. For all intents and purposes, it would have been just another piece that made for amusing reading to a techno-hippie in California, only to be forgotten at a cafe or at a friend's coffee table. Gibson's incisive commentary on the strange Orwellian state of things in Singapore and on the novelty of an Asian city that felt more Western than exotic would have faded into obscurity. Except it didn't. Because something happened a month later that changed everything. And that something, or rather someone, was Michael Fay. In Singapore, the cane, not the assault weapon, is the instrument getting all of the attention these days. A young American has been sentenced to a caning for an act of vandalism. He says he didn't commit. And today, his co-defendant was sentenced. NBC's Lucky Severson is in Singapore tonight. In 1993, the Straits Times reported a rise in car vandalism in Singapore. Cars were getting spray-painted on, hot tar poured on, and damaged with hatchets too. 
People complained of scratches, dents, and slashed tires. One of these cars was owned by a judicial commissioner, and so the case took on some urgency. In October of 1993, a teenager, originally from Hong Kong, Andy Xiu Chi Ho, was arrested in relation to this. Based on the 16-year-old's testimonial, nine students from the Singapore American School were booked. The charges laid against them were for damage to private property, theft of public property, and various counts of vandalism. One of them was an 18-year-old American named Michael Fay. This news went viral. Michael Fay was subsequently sentenced to six flashes of the cane, an established punishment for vandalism in Singapore, and this fact blew up on American media. The reaction among the American public was polarizing. Based on popular media polls at the time, as much as 40% of Americans supported the punishment of Michael Fay. The reigning sentiment among them was that if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, especially in a foreign land. That said, about as many Americans opposed the treatment of the young adult, citing that spray painting was a minor infraction and the punishment dealt for that was excessive and deliberate in targeting an American teenager to be made an example of. American media had a field day with this. Coverage of this incident was massive. It even got the attention of the US president at the time, Bill Clinton, who requested for leniency in the sentencing. The government of Singapore did not take kindly to the US attempt at telling them how to dispense justice, and so the Michael Fay case turned into a full-blown diplomatic feud. Heated statements were released back and forth. Dignitaries and figures of authority all over the world weighed in. Michael Fay's parents rallied for support across America, protesting against what they called a gross miscarriage of justice. Michael Fay eventually received four whacks to the bum. And after spending a total of 83 days in Singaporean jails, he finally got back home to the US, where he became a media sensation. In March, news a Singapore court had sentenced an 18-year-old American to six strokes with a bamboo cane swept round the world. I was bent over halfway. I mean, my back was bent in a 90 degree, and I was cuffed, um, buckled like this. And he's whipping it as he's going on, on each step. And can you hear the whip? And yes, you, yes, I can. Mm -hmm. And on the third, third step, he strikes, and he cuts open your buttocks. And there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain. He did interviews and book deals, talking about his saga, his innocence, his claims of torture during his time in jail, where he said that he was coerced into confessing to crimes he did not commit. Reams of paper and hours of television were devoted to the incident, complete with lurid descriptions of caning, which, to Western audiences, was considered barbaric, uncivilized, and in line with the popular notions of strange conformist Asian societies that valued discipline over democracy. The Michael Fay affair soon became a commentary on human rights and on the ideological differences between the East and West, 
with the East clearly being the enemy here, in popular media spin at least. Once an obscure country unknown to the average American, Singapore was instantly thrust into public consciousness, and there was a scramble to understand more about this weird island nation, which seemingly had little regard for human rights and an overbearing righteousness when it came to rule of law. One of the most quoted commentaries of Singapore at the time turned out to be the most recent one, an article from the Wired magazine from a couple of months ago called Disneyland with the Death Penalty. It got referenced in major newspapers in the US. William Gibson's irreverent take on a strange Asian city now took on a more sinister flavor, painting a picture of an authoritarian and inflexible country straight out of a dystopian science fiction novel. What was supposed to be the personal anecdotes and opinions of a cyberpunk writer? In the eyes of the newspaper and television audiences worldwide, Gibson's words became a quotable work of journalism. And how could it not be? Disneyland with the death penalty was a catchy phrase, and it stuck. It has stuck for decades now, getting more mileage than it really warranted. Listeners, you can probably tell by now that I heartily disagree with William Gibson and everything that his essay represents. But was he wrong? A lot of people agree with his sentiments, at least chunks of it. What's interesting for me is how differently Gibson's article is interpreted in the expat community in Singapore versus how local Singaporeans see it. Based on the expats that I've talked to, um, they tended to place importance on the quality of life stuff. Lack of arts, lack of culture, boringness, soullessness, lack of creativity, all that good stuff. Singaporeans, on the other hand, are well aware of the social and political narratives that influence their lives, and a number of them are therefore quite critical of the shortcomings of centralized governance by the dominant political party, whose chain of command has remained unbroken since 1965. Gibson's discomfort with overbearing authority kind of resonated with some Singaporeans, even while they disagreed with Gibson's surface-level critique of culture and soul. Even so, there is some credence to his interpretation of the ethos of Singapore in 1993. Lee Kuan Yew, the first prime minister, had turned Singapore into an economic powerhouse in just a generation, and he ran the country like a tightly controlled ship, with very little room for dissidents. Even though he stepped down from his position as Prime Minister in 1990, a lot of the social attitudes were affected by the no-nonsense-style governance of the late LKY. For example, a strong inclination to follow rules. Another example would be a general reluctance to talk about sensitive topics like race, religion, and criticism of government because of historical circumstance, and a slew of political incidents that dissuaded unfettered expression. 
I can see how Gibson would perceive this society as one that is muzzled and whipped into shape. In the end, it's important to remember that Disneyland with the death penalty is a product of its time. A time when Asian countries were little more than exoticized caricatures in popular media that served as conversational fodder, where people get to say things like, Huh, that's so weird. Asia is so weird, man. It was from a time when words like boring, sterile, and lacking soul applied to Asian cities that did not wear garish cultural motifs on their sleeves. What's crazy is that these words, boring, sterile, soulless, have since been internalized and interwoven into the Singapore story for years, largely thanks to the likes of Gibson and other Eurocentric narratives that were considered canon. Hey, I'm sure that some people will find Singapore boring, soulless, and I don't want to discredit their opinions. I'm not holding a gun to anyone's head when they say a country is all of these things. Their personal experiences count, for sure. All I'm saying is, take the time to reflect on where these ideas and opinions come from, and if they are from personal experience or from rehashed ideas and narratives past their expiry date. I'm pretty sure I'm giving Gibson and his article way more significance than it really warrants, and I do have an unfortunate tendency to overanalyze, so I'm going to stop right here. Hopefully, I've given you all some context around William Gibson, his article, Disneyland with the Death Penalty, and the environment that allowed it to become known far and wide. The next time you hear someone talk about Singapore being Disneyland with the death penalty, do try to explain the history and why it really isn't as relevant anymore. It makes for great small talk, I swear. I'm Rindo, and you were listening to Living It Up in Lion City. City.